Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe this is the 500th episode. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Our mind becomes this box, and in it is us. And what we do so well is that we trap ourselves in our nice, comfortable box. So once you get outside your own box, which is your head, the growth then starts. How do you do that? You go into your workplace, you look at the people around you, and you say, who do I admire and why? What are they doing that I'm not sure how to do, but they're doing it well, and I'd like to learn how to do that? Yeah, I just felt it, man. I think... um I think we've all in this room experienced that, like that that thing that you do that you know just feels right. Like this feels like me. This is my future. Like I think if we're all, you know, aware of who we are as people and we're really in tune with the universe, you know when you're in a certain space, like this is what I want to do. Like I, I would do this for free. I started recording these episodes in 2013, over six years ago. And I've interviewed, I've interviewed 500 of the best peak performers in the world. I mean, the list goes on and on. Here's my rationale when I have someone on. I have questions to ask. And my philosophy is I only have an hour or maybe in some cases two hours with them. I'm going to ask every question I can because I'm never going to probably spend this time with them ever again. So it's the only chance I have to learn. And so I'm going to be shameless and I'm not afraid to ask any question. I want to, I want to learn how did they become the best in the world at what they do? There's so many common qualities of many of these people, but one is specifically somebody always told them you can't do this at some point. And it's only in that mysterious jungle on the other side of the words, I can't, that all 500 of these guests achieved amazing success. It's through that fire that they found the peak performance that led to not only their excellence in life, but even a greater sense of well-being. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I really feel for me, this has been a blessing to have these 500 conversations and to share them with everybody listening. And not only that, to hear your feedback and your questions. Often I would mention on Twitter, someone who was coming up as a guest and people would respond with, ask them this, ask them this. And I would ask those questions and they were also questions and answers that ended up changing my life and I hope having an effect on yours. And I always ask myself, this is a lot of work. Like I don't make any money on this. There's ads, but there's also, this is a, this is a difficult podcast. There's a lot of expenses. There's a lot of people working on this podcast. I could tell you, I make, if anything, I lose money on this podcast because I will travel to meet a great guest and I'll do that 
above and beyond whatever the advertiser's paying. And it's a lot of work. For each guest, on average, is about eight or nine hours of preparation. And I say on average because some are more. Some could be 20 hours of preparation, and some are a little bit less. But in general, for each guest, I'll read all of their books. I'll watch all the interviews they've done. If they're an actor, I'll watch you know most of their movies or TV shows. I want to be able to connect all the dots. I want to see the growth in their career and understand why they made the different decisions that led to now. And the deeper question is, what are you trying today that's a little bit outside of your comfort zone, that's a little bit difficult for you, but you get practice at being disappointed and turning disappointment into saying, well, what did I learn from this? I don't know. I could go on and on about each guest, but why do I continue to do it is I'm still continuing to learn so much. We have so many great guests lined up that I'm so proud of, and I can't wait to talk to them. We probably ask 30 people a day to come on this podcast. And it's interesting, my podcast producer, Steve Cohen, he has this philosophy, which I call the 16 touches philosophy, which is basically in order to get a a great, great guest, you have to reach out to them on average 16 times without being annoying. And then eventually he's always very confident. They'll say yes. But again, been a valuable experience. I'm not, I'm a very introverted person. I'm not very good at networking. And yet I've had to reach out to people ranging from my childhood heroes to the latest authors publishing amazing books. But now I just want to mention, uh, I hope you guys also are getting something from each podcast. If there's more you would like to learn, or if there are topics you're interested in, or if there's areas you think I should explore more, please leave a comment on the reviews. I always check out the reviews on the Apple podcast, subscribe to the podcast on Apple podcast. It really helps me out a lot and ask any questions or leave any review and I'll, I'll read them and, and hopefully even respond to them. So to celebrate these 500 episodes and how meaningful this has been, not just as a career thing, but this podcast has been life changing for me. It's certainly more than 10% of my life in terms of the hours. It's probably I've spent more hours working on this podcast than any other endeavor in my life, except for maybe writing. So to celebrate 500 episodes, I took clips from all the different episodes, just from, from the last 100 interviews. And I'm doing this every hundred episodes. Here's what you'll get from this episode. You're going to hear about developing a mindset that actually pushes you to do what you want in life. So much is about mindset and how you, you know, I I always say there's this daily practice to choosing yourself. And I found this to be true. Once I started this podcast for every single person I interviewed, how you deal with your physical health, how you deal with your emotional health, your creative health, and your spiritual health. Every single person I interviewed was focused on these four components. And that's part of developing a mindset. And so important, you're going to hear how people develop a sense of humor because life is pretty hard. We all have tragedies in our life. We all have breakups that are, you know, that really take us down or, or people who reject us or portray us, or we get fired from a job or we lose someone due to illness or accident. Who knows? We can't predict the changes in our lives and developing a sense of humor about these situations. I'm not saying laugh at always in the face of tragedy, but learning to observe kind of the comedy in life, learning to observe the comedy that's folded in between these major tragedies in our life. This helps us 
to propel us from day to day with that sense of humor. It helps us to observe the things around us in a more 360 degree way. And you're going to see a lot of that in these last 100 episodes. You're also going to see how people have gone from the humblest of humble beginnings into millions and in many cases, billions of dollars. I even wrote a book analyzing the habits of all of the billionaires I've interviewed. I call it Think Like a Billionaire. There's various ways to get it, but it's based on the interviews I've done in this podcast. You're going to hear from psychotherapists that I've interviewed. You're going to hear from business moguls. You're going to hear from peak performers of all types, athletes, comedians, rappers, writers, a Supreme Court judge. I mean, I'm really proud that this podcast was the only podcast, I believe, that a Supreme Court judge has been on. And also, a beach boy has been on this podcast, which I don't know of any other podcast that could really say that. So it was such a pleasure to talk to such a wide variety of people. And additionally to the ones I just mentioned, there's going to be so many other legends who are just living proof that it is never too late to choose yourself. And that's so important. I'm 51 years old. I'm always trying new things. I always wonder, am I too late? Boy, I really wish I had started this when I was 15 instead of 50. But I'm always reminded. And I think Julia Cameron, the author of The Artist's Way, who was on the podcast, she even said that uh, just the thought when I think that I'm too late or too old, that's almost like an emotional prison around my creativity. And she really inspired me. So to get started, you'll hear from one of my favorites from the past 100 episodes. This guy is incredible. His book, Can't Hurt Me, is incredible. The podcast, again, was life-changing for me. And I'll admit, not every podcast I do is extremely life-changing, but this one was. I would say, even though I did this podcast about six months ago, I would say I probably quote this guy to other people at least once a day. And so the guy I'm talking about, author of Can't Hurt Me, David Goggins, uh, talks about how he rose from nothing to be, it's probably one of the most physically fit people on the planet. And it was pure, raw pain for him not only physically, but in every aspect of his life. And so inspirational to see what he had been through and what he talked about. Among the many quotes I have quoted him from the podcast, one thing I said to someone just yesterday is that this applies physically like an exercise, but it could apply to anything. When you feel you're at your very limit where your body is screaming, stop, you know, the pain is just too much. David Goggins told me that means you can go 40% further. So if you did... 20 push-ups, as an example, and your body is just like, I can't do another one. It means you could probably do 40% or at least eight more before you really conk out. And I find that this idea metaphorically applies to so many areas of life, but I'll let him describe to you. So this is from episode 412. I hope you enjoy it. This table is a box shape. And we live right here. But outside this box-shaped table, how much space is in this room? A lot. Yeah. That's our mind. Our mind becomes this box. And in it is us. And what we do so well is that we trap ourselves in our nice, comfortable box. That, okay, I'm good at reading, writing, running, and I'm good at bench press. So this is what we do in our box. Outside the box is squats, deadlifts, you know, mathematics, 
science, you know, space travel, all this shit out here that I'm not good at it, so I'm going to stay in my box. I did that for several years. Once you peek over the box and you look and you see, fuck, there's a whole fucking bunch of space out there that I can grow in. So once you get outside your own box, which is your head, the growth then starts. Like for me, I was a fat guy. I lived in my box. I was 300 pounds for a long period of time. My box was much smaller than this table. But the second I got the courage to go outside my box, I became the man that's in front of you right now. On the outside of your brain, there's possibilities in this, possibilities. So, and you suggest like everybody should find, every day people should find things to do outside of their comfort zone. So like, what's, what's an example of this outside, let's say the physical realm, right. like, because, you know, like you said, you went, you know, you know, it was, you had this life change where you were, you know, working for Ecolab. You were basically, it was, it's almost like, like a movie. I feel like I've seen the movie where, <laughs> you know, you're cleaning off cockroaches in restaurants. It's a true and story. You decide yeah. You're going to go, you know, be like, a seal and you get inspired by this TV and then you go out and do it and first you fail and then you get, you totally have the arc of the, the hero. Like it's the perfect right. hero's journey. And, um, but, but getting out of your comfort zone happens in a lot of different ways. And what are, what are some other ways you think people could, people listening to this could, could potentially explore where their comfort zone is and then move outside of it. So a lot of people get fooled once again with me about all the physical, this all started this whole comfort zone shit started with me having a learning disability. So as you, if you read the book, you know that I cheated all through school. Had a fourth grade reading level up to my junior year. So where my being very uncomfortable happened was how I learned is very different than everybody else, than most people. Most people nowadays, you have a learning disability. Oh my God, oh my God, it's so bad, it's so horrible. A lot of learning disabilities mean one thing, the amount of work and self-discipline you have to put into yourself is beyond any kind of physical thing you can ever do. And I realized that at my kitchen table, my junior year in high school, when I wanted to go in the military and I couldn't read on the, I was reading on the fourth grade level and I got exposed. My life got exposed to the world and it was very embarrassing. My mom didn't even know I was cheating. You know, she was working three jobs, you know, trying to make ends meet. And, and so she got this letter from school and saying, hey, your son is flunking out of school. That's why I put my report card in there. And that's from cheating. That report card was from cheating. So, you know, I was, I was obviously cheating off, you know, the, uh, the wrong people. So, but basically how it happened was I realized for me to get in the military, I had to pass this watered down SAT. It's called the ASVAB. I failed it repeatedly. Kept on failing it and failing it and failing it. I realized, okay, I have to learn pretty much from elementary all the way to high school in six months for my last time to pass this test. And it was a daunting task. We only had $15, you know, a week we could spend towards a, towards a, uh, towards a tutor. So I had four hours a month and I had to pretty much learn all of high school in a, in a, in a period of six months on my own. So that became very difficult for me and literally every night I would buy these spiral notebooks and I had these manuals, mathematics, English, science, all these manuals, basically, you know, like fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. 
And I would go through and I had to literally memorize these manuals because I couldn't learn like everybody else. So I went through, I would get my spiral notebook and I would start writing each page of the manual. And I would go back through and write like page one. Imagine this. Imagine getting a science book and how you learn the science book is writing 700 fucking pages down four times, four times to learn what's in this. So how I did it was, and that's for every single book. It took hours, 20, sometimes 20, and people don't believe it, a junior in high school, sometimes 20 hours during the summertime, I would spend at the table. Just repeat this shit. And I became obsessed over this process to where I could be in a test, and how I would do it was I'd be in a test, and I'd say, okay, shit, okay, 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 okay. And I shut my eyes, and I remember that was on page 420, and that's how I would be able to put the answer down. It wasn't like I learned anything. I memorized what I wrote down. I don't remember any of that shit, but that's how I learned, and that's how that work ethic, and it's very powerful when you're willing to sit down at a table for six months and not move pretty much, but to sleep and eat and go back and to learn. And that's when all this began. So you talk about how can you become uncomfortable? If you have a learning disability, don't accept it. There's some people that have disabilities that you cannot fix. A lot of things can be fixed by hard work. Not everything, not everything, but a lot of things can be overcome by outworking whatever disability you have, mental or physical. And you've, you've done this in quite a few areas. So you just mentioned the learning disability and taking this test that was so important to you. Obviously getting through Hell Week and all the different military training programs you went through was another way you had to push yourself beyond the comfort zone. Then running the 100 miles, running the Hurt 100 through Death Valley, running, um, uh, you know, doing the, the, the pull-ups, even, and we were just talking about this, going on a book tour. This has got to be, this is, <laughs> what's, what's the worst part of going on a book tour for you? Honestly, I'm, uh, you know, I, I talk about in the book, I used to stutter real bad. So trying to figure out how not to stutter, people go, you know, like, how'd you do that? How did you stop stuttering? Because people can't do that. They go to speech therapists, they do the focus of the mind. Right now, I'm with James. Every word I'm saying right now is thought out. So when I speak, as you see, I speak slowly and very, I'm very concentrated on what I'm doing. I do that with everything in life. This next clip is from Scott Galloway, such a smart guy. He wrote The Algebra of Happiness. He's also written books about technology and technological companies. He just blows me away with his intelligence. A lot of people who have been on the podcast, I just feel are above average in terms of genius. So Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens, Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, Nassim Taleb, who wrote Fooled by Randomness, Anti-Fragile, Skin in the Game, The Black Swan. Just so many people are inc incredibly smart. And actually, we've talked about intelligence quite a bit on this podcast. One of my regular favorite guests is Amy Morin, who wrote 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, and Maria Konnikova, who wrote How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. All these people are so intelligent, but they've written about intelligence. 
and how to take shortcuts to improve your intelligence. But anyway, Scott Galloway wanted to figure out how he could be happier. And he wrote the Algebra of Happiness, which again was an inspirational conversation. This is from episode 474. Here's the clip. Yeah, so for me, it comes from a place of anger. My father uh, suffers from it. And it's just, again, you know, my, I was going through, I was talking to, I think it was my sister, and I speak to my sister pretty much every week. And she asked me, she said, and I can answer almost any question or at least pretend to try. And she said, Scott, why are you so pissed off all the time? And I didn't have a good answer. <laughs> if you look at it, and I'm sure as, as you look at your life, being born in America, having access to state-funded education, having a wonderful family, having economic security, you know, liking what I do, I just have no excuse for being pissed off. So I started thinking a lot about just managing uh, my own happiness. For me, depression are the only times I've really think I've felt real depression is when I've isolated myself from other people and kind of at, when I moved to New York, I was living in San Francisco. I didn't like what I was doing. I was in e-commerce because I thought it was cool. I didn't right, like- So just to mention, you you started Red Envelope, was one yeah. of the companies you started as an e-commerce company, went public in the uh, first dot-com boom. Um, by the way, our stories are parallel. Yep. I sold my first company to a public company in yep. 1998. Uh, you rode that rise and fall, and then you had a similar rise and fall in yeah. 2008. And then uh, your, 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 ups and downs. your financial ups and downs are very similar to, to yeah. mine. So yeah. I'm rich. No, I'm not. I'm rich. No, no, I'm not. Anyway, so it 99, I just decided I wanted to, I didn't like my job. I didn't like myself. I didn't like my friends. I thought my friends were basically unremarkable people who were super fortunate or or mistook uh, being blessed or being interesting. Like, what, what, what stood out to you as... I, just, I thought a lot of the people I were hanging out, and again, it's a reflection on me and the friends I, was, uh, I chose. I, I remember going to Davos. I got invited to Davos because in that day and age, if you were 33 and had a shaved head, you must be a fucking genius and, and know insight into the cosmos. And so I got invited to Davos a bunch of times. I made a bunch of friends there. And I just realized... The only reason I'm friends with, a majority of my friends are is because I'm trying to surround myself with quote unquote impressive people so other people will think I'm impressive. And I thought, am I really getting a lot of joy and camaraderie from these people? Are they getting it from me? And the answer was no. So I kind of freaked out, pressed the reset button, got divorced, resigned from the board of Red Envelope, moved to New York, basically left everything behind and joined the faculty of NYU. I wanted to change my life dramatically. I literally wanted to kind of start over, and uh, nothing really bad happened. I'm uh, a wonderful woman, and people would say to me, you're never going to do better. And I, I would say, well, I want to do different. And quite frankly, it was a selfish move. Uh, I think it was a function of the fact that I could do it. Um, it pretty much always came down to me. I, you know, That was kind of my first, second, and third priority was my happiness and my selfish needs. So it probably wasn't what I call a high-character moment in my life. But I moved to New York, and... We're talking about depression. I kind of became an island. I isolated myself, and that is, I basically only left my loft. I disengaged from friends. Obviously, wasn't married any longer. My mom had just passed away, which really took a toll on me. And then I basically only leave my loft for like food, sex, and go to go to the ready teller. And about 24 months into that, and occasionally do a little bit of kind of pretend work because I had some money, so I needed something to kind of pretend to do. And then I realized kind of 24 months into it that an instinct kicks in that if you continue to do this, you're going to die early. And there's a lot of research showing that men who live on their own die eight to 10 years earlier than men who are engaged in a family. Women are better at this because they maintain social connections. But if you want, if you're a man and you want to check out early, just kind of start hanging out alone a lot. And typically- well, How do they die? 
Well, uh, any number of ways, but essentially you have, and it makes sense, kind of a low, uh, kind of a low resolution security camera on in your brain trying to figure out if you're adding value. It, and it, when you're on the Stairmaster or on a rowing machine and sweating, you fool the security camera into believing that you're hunting prey or building housing and it secretes a hormone that's really good for you. When you're engaged at work or doing a crossword puzzle, you, feel the, you fool the security camera again into believing that you're making important decisions for your cohort or your clan and decides to, for you to you know, let you stick around. When you're sedentary and not engaged in other people's lives and challenged and physically active, basically the security camera figures out you're not adding any value and stops secreting the hormone that clears out the bad cholesterol and you can develop any number of ailments, whether it's depression or diabetes or, uh, but yeah, the, you, you wanna live a long time, you better, especially as a man, you better be engaged. And the number one source or the number one indicator of longevity was how social they were. Or simply put, how many people in their life did they care for? Or how many people in their life did they love? And it makes sense because if you think of what the camera really wants in terms of survival of the species, the species, the universe wants to prosper. When a sun dies, it comes back a bigger sun. The, the, the universe wants the next generation to be stronger, smarter, faster. And so it creates incentives around things that are good for the species. Uh, eating food is fun. Having sex feels great. And most importantly, caring for others is the most important thing to the future or the survival of the species. So it's the most rewarding thing. I, I try and segment love into three things. The love you get as a kid, unconditional love, transactional love, which is the majority of the kind of types of love that you and I are engaging in at this point where we get something in exchange. We get intimacy, economic security, sex, whatever it might be, a safe household to raise a family. But the most kind of, I would say, important type of love is when you get to a point emotionally, spiritually, financially, where you can sort of engage in what I would call complete love. And that is you're not keeping score, you've just decided to go all in on someone else's well-being, regardless of what if and what you get back. And at the end of the day, that is the most important single attribute, motion, notion, activity for the success of the species. And so if you can get to that point, it's also the most rewarding. And most people get to it instinctively with children, but I think really self-actualized people get to it with a lot of people in their lives. So they decide, I'm gonna stop keeping score, I'm just going all in and um, having an irrational passion for this person's well-being. This next guest I already spoke about, Justice Sonia Sotomayor. You know, I always wondered, you know, these nine individuals out of all 300 million people in the country that essentially decide the buck stops there at the Supreme Court when deciding what laws will ultimately become law and which ones are unconstitutional. These people have such a big responsibility. And I did get that sense going to the building and speaking with her, how almost as like a sacred trust they treat that responsibility and even their relationships with the other justices, which we discussed. And whether someone's on the, the left or the right, is not as important as how these people communicate with each other and make decisions and keep on moving forward for the, the benefit of the country. And it was amazing to talk to her. So if you want to go back here, the full episode it's number 442. We are about to hear a clip, but I just want to mention all of this is going to be linked to in the show notes for this 500th episode. When I was in law school, and I described this in my book, I went to a big private law firm and didn't have a good experience there. And I realized that A, I wasn't ready for that kind of law practice yet, but B, that it really didn't interest me that much. 
And so my third year at Yale, I was literally in the library studying one night um, and had to go from the library to the woman's bathroom, which at the time at Yale Law School was at the other end of a very long hallway. <laughs> and as I walked towards that area, I saw a sign outside of the door that said public interest panel. And it was a panel of public interest lawyers, some of them quite notable, talking about their work as alternatives to going to a big firm. And I poked my head in and I saw at the back of the room um, some food. And uh, consistent with being a student then, I listened and they were introducing the last speaker and I thought, maybe I should just step in and listen to him and then I can get some food, which I did. And it turned out to be my future boss, Bob Morgenthau. And he talked about the work in his office and how at 23, 24 years old, when we graduated from law school, we would have more responsibility as a lawyer in his office than we would have in any other area of law in which we would think of practicing at that stage in our careers. And that intrigued me. And so when his talk ended, we happened to be right next to each other online and we started speaking and he said, come interview with me tomorrow. And I looked at him and said, I will. And I did. I went and interviewed with him, had a wonderful interview. He invited me to his office and thereafter offered me a job and I took it. This wasn't in my plans. It was a spontaneous decision in the sense of that it wasn't planned. But I do think that you have to plan your life and be willing to stop at a moment and take a new opportunity when it fits within things that make sense to you. Like what excited you once he said, come interview with me? The idea that I would have the responsibility he mm. talked about, that I would go into a courtroom because I had already done one trial advocacy class and one uh, barrister's union, which is a fake trial at Yale. And I knew I was very good in those public speaking aspects. I had debated in um, high school I'd done a fair amount of public speaking in my life and really enjoyed that aspect of things being quick and quick fired and things being fast paced. It's much suited to my personality. And I had gone to walk around the DA's office and realized this could be exciting work. And I took it. Um, but so that that moment, not planned, but understood in terms of what I was good at, that it presented an alternative that I should take. And so, so what's interesting too is, obviously you were very good at what you were doing. And there were probably many good people at Yale studying law. Um, and, and, and let's say you were even the best, we don't know, but let's say you were. Part of it too is taking advantage of opportunities. You met somebody on a line and took advantage not of luck because you availed yourself of the opportunity to go to this public interest luncheon. You were standing online with somebody. You said yes. Um, but there's always a combination of being good and networking with good people. And I noticed throughout your career, there's always people who you can go to it for advice. You can go to for networking. That seems always, critically important. You have to select those. You have to look for them. And you have to pay attention when you're doing them. How do you do that? How do you do that? You go into your workplace 
you look at the people around you and you say, who do I admire and why? What are they doing that I'm not sure how to do, but they're doing it well and I'd like to learn how to do that. And then you go and you volunteer to work for them. And it means extra work. It means that you do what they are assigning you and everybody else is giving you. But you go and seek that person out. And even if you have to work later hours and longer hours, you do it to impress them. In short order, and it's happened throughout my career, they'll take you over. They'll want to work with you more because if you're useful and helpful to them, they're going to want to work more with you. And that's what's happened throughout my career. So in every setting I've gone to, I've looked for mentors who I think possess skills I don't and skills I want to learn. And I seek them out to A, learn them, but B, to practice with their kind of integrity and professionalism. Because it's not something that comes to anyone innately. It's something you learn. And so you have to pick people that are valuable to you in the sense of being good people doing good work. This next clip is from my live interview with Charlemagne the God, who had published a book called Shook One, Anxiety Playing Tricks on Me. It's episode 407. And we discussed this a little bit in the podcast. We talked about his anxiety. But anxiety plagues something like 26 million Americans, like almost 10% of the country. And there's been times in my life where I've been so anxious and so scared, I wouldn't be able to sleep. I wouldn't be able to function as a parent. And I had to really study how can I cure my own anxiety because there's nothing good about anxiety. Anxiety will prevent you from creativity. It'll take away energy you need to start businesses or start creative projects or be a good community member or a good family member. I mean, a small amount of anxiety might be good to drive you forward. Like you say to yourself, oh, I'm anxious about getting my paycheck, so I better go to work. So that's a normal amount. But in our society, it's almost like we feel we're perpetually in the jungle, being attacked by lions. And all we're doing is we're sitting still looking at a computer screen. And so that's why anxiety gets out of control often in society. So I was really grateful that Charlemagne came on the podcast. We did it actually in front of a live audience. It's episode 407. Let's roll the clip. One of your things you say in Black Privilege is, fuck your dreams. And it's because, in part, you initially wanted to be a rapper. Yes. You ended up in radio, which, by the way, could, could be, you could say, you, st you stuck with the umbrella of the same dream, which was being a, a, a voice in, in the culture and, and you know, being a communicator, an entertainer, a performer. So they're roughly, they're not the same, but it's in the same category. Mm -hmm. But how does one kind of navigate passion with failure oh or how have you done it that's a uh, that's a great question i um i mean finally you know, i asked a great question <laughs> thank you like like most like most brothers in the hood man like when the people we see who are successful that look like us they're usually in entertainment or athletics so that's why i wanted to be a rapper and you know my mentor dr robert evans like he told me like yo you suck as a rapper like rap is not your thing you know what I'm saying? Like, you should stick to this radio thing because you're, like, really good at that. And if you focus on radio, you could be one of the biggest radio personalities in the country. 
And I didn't fight him on that. And the reason I didn't fight him on that, like I didn't even feel the need to want to prove him wrong because I did enjoy radio. I really enjoyed radio more than I enjoyed rapping. You go in the rap, you go in the booth in the studio and you hot and you sweating and you off beat and yo, run that back, yo, run that back. And you just, uh, uh, one, two, one, two, just trying to catch the beat. Like that shit is whack to me. It wasn't natural to me. And so it's like, when he said that to me, it just clicked because a lot of times, you know, we, 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 it's not really our, it's not our dream we're chasing. It's just something we see working for somebody else. And when you see it working for somebody else, you're like, oh, I can, I can do that too. But it's not your dream. It's not the, the path that God wanted you to walk. Like radio was my thing. And I got a tattoo on my arm. I got this when I was mad young and this Wolverine holding a microphone in his hand because I thought I was going to be a rapper. And I just knew that that microphone was going to change my life. But I realized now that microphone wasn't, you know, the spit bars. It was the How did you know? How did content. you know radio? Well, like, did you, did you feel something different the first time yeah. you started doing a radio yeah, show? Yeah, I just felt it, man. I think, um, I think we've all in this room experienced that. Like, that, that thing that you do that you know just feels right. Like, this feels like me. This is my future. Like, I think if we're all you know, aware of who we are as people and we're really in tune with the universe, you know when you're in a certain space, like, this is what I want to do. Like, I, I would do this for free. Like, I genuinely enjoy doing it. Like, it lifts me up. It makes me feel empowered. It, it inspires me. Like, I don't, I don't even care about the money. I just like doing radio. And that's what it was for me. Like, it was almost like I would always get in trouble when I was in school for being a clown and being disruptive. So, so, so someone listening to this mm -hmm. who uh, is trying to figure out, like, oh, I'm, I'm 40 years old. I just got fired from some weird job. I want to figure out what I love. I don't know. I've, it's been 20 years of working the grind. I want to do now something I love. What, what could be the first step? Not At the 40? last step, but the first step. At 40? Yeah. I don't know. You should have had that figured out by 40. 40? Don't, don't, don't let 40? them down. Don't let them down. They're listening. I'll They're, tell you one thing. Don't rap. They're, okay. they're, they're listening and in their Nobody's car. gonna respect a 40-year-old rapper trying to make it, okay? Um, but they're listening in their car. They're on the edge of their seats. They're listening to you. What They want to reinvent. They just got uh, fired. They, that's not that easy. I gotta hear more. <laughs> like, it's gotta be a little bit more nuanced than that. I need to know exactly what it is you're trying to do. Because it is a lot of people at 40 that's quitting their jobs because they want to be entrepreneurs now, but it's because they have products that they want to sell or you know they got t-shirts that they've made or they've got some idea for an app that they want to push now and all of that's great but i gotta hear more i gotta know exactly why you're quitting your job at 40 years old because I, I i thoroughly believe that it's 168 hours in a week and i believe that it's more than enough time to chase your dreams and deal with your reality and the reality is you got bills and the reality is you probably got kids at 40. And the reality is you probably got a significant other you need to take care of. So after you do your 40 hours or, you know, whatever it is, a week at your job that's dealing with your reality, then use the rest of the time to try to, you know, chase your dreams. Right, because at some point in their lives, like you said, everybody in this room has had at some point that feeling, this is something I would do for free. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. even if they can't, they're not going to, like, immediately apply to be... Uh, a radio host somewhere, but maybe there's there's little steps that they could take. Well, I mean, like you know, the, the radio thing worked for me, and that's that's what I said earlier. Like, I, I I grew up in school. I got kicked out of two high schools, and I was a class clown, 
and I was disruptive. That's what, that's what any progress report, any write-up that you would see, disruptive, class clown. Now I get paid to be disruptive and a class clown on radio. So it's kind of like I took those, you know, so-called flaws and, and made them my, my script in a, in a way. So I think that's what everybody needs to do. Like sit back and figure out what it is that you're good at or, or what, what, or what you Huh? What you were disruptive at at yeah, the age of 13. Exa exactly. That might be your thing. Like, you might have been the guy who was in school who just always drew all the time. Like, you was just always drawing, and you was a very good drawer, and you used to get in trouble for not doing your homework because you was always drawing. Did you ever pursue art? Ever? Did you ever, you know, think to get into animation, maybe? Did you ever try to write your own comic? Did you ever do illustration illustration for, for some books or anything? Like, you just have to really pay attention to the, the, the things that you're you're good at that you may not be getting paid for, or you may even be getting in trouble for, and try to find power within that. John Paul DeJoria is one of the most insane billionaires I've had the pleasure of interviewing. First off, this guy was homeless and living in his car, and from that beginnings, he had to use just raw salesmanship and creativity to build up to a career to create an empire for himself. So first he created Paul Mitchell hair systems, and then he recently sold a Patron tequila for something like $3 billion. His story is amazing. You have to listen to it, but I want to, it's interesting. After the podcast was over, we were just randomly talking and he was telling me story after story about UFOs and then showing me these YouTube clips all about UFOs and other people who have scientific evidence. So eventually I'll have them on again to talk about UFOs, but it was so funny to, I always had this image in my mind that once someone becomes a billionaire, they join this club where they, they start calling each other on this secret hotline and they get all the real secrets of the planet. But it was interesting just seeing this guy go into all of these like insane theories. I say insane in the, the best possible way. I don't think he's insane. But it was a fun conversation. I like the way he, he he thinks out of the box in his businesses, in his life, and even with UFOs. So I'm looking forward to my next chat with him. But here's the clip. You know, obviously, you've achieved great success. And great success happens by being as rational as possible in terms of building you know, companies with thousands of people, motivating them, leading sure. them, executing on products, you know, selling all over the world. That requires, you know, great intelligence, great rational behavior, great uh, ability to understand emotionally the people around you and work with, you know, people you love and trust and so on. Um, but also what you're telling me shows you have this real, and, and stuff we discussed before the podcast, which we'll get to by the end of the podcast, you have this amazing open mind where, You'll take in, it seems like you take in an idea and you instantly start churning what, can, what, what pushing the edges on what you can do with this idea. And so it might be an idea like what's going on, what happened 10,000 years ago, or it might be an idea of how can we find oil ecologically safe, or it might be an idea, how can we provide uh, medical service to a billion people in, in India? Yeah. So, so what, what do you think is. How do how do you exercise your creativity? Because I always feel it's a sort of muscle. Maybe maybe you don't agree. Maybe you've, maybe you've had it from the beginning. 
being on your planet, our planet, being on the planet Earth here, okay, one could Are you an alien? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm as human as you are, okay? <laughs> there may be some hybrid in there, but I don't know about that, right. okay? Anyways, uh, being on this planet, we get to experience everything we want, especially being in America, which is a free country. So you could go from homelessness to billionaire. You go from fat person to skinny person. You do anything you really want to do. But the thing is to leave yourself open to the universe. Every morning when I wake up, or most mornings when I wake up, I'll wake up, do what most people do. You go to the bathroom first. Then I'll usually try and go right back to bed. And for just a few minutes, it's almost like a mantra where I say to myself or out loud, if there's not too many people around, creator of souls, thank you for this life you've given me and just show me the truth. And then for two minutes, I try and have a blank mind. That's hard to do because things run through our mind. So I'll be in a room and I'll look at the wall. I'll look at the TV set. I'll look at the drape I'll, and to get back into I'm here in present time and try and clear my mind where there's nothing on my mind for two minutes. Not think about what I'm doing for the day and then go about my day. A lot of accidents happen in our days. The accidents that happen sometimes are a good one. Like we turn right, not left. I was fired from this job. To start Paul Mitchell, I was fired from three jobs. Three companies fired me, okay? One because I complained about them testing on animals. They shouldn't do it, right? But I learned something from all three companies. When I started Paul Mitchell, had I not been with all three companies, it would have been impossible to start Paul Mitchell with nothing or even millions of dollars. Well, I had the knowledge. It was it came my way. I was open to the universe, and, but I didn't know it at the time. But later on, it said, of course, that was brought out for me. So there's something called fate. There's something called fate. Well, and I, I believe that be, in, in your case in particular, because in all of those companies, you were a sales guy. And, in, and even in one case for Collier's encyclopedia, you were selling door to door for, yep. for three years when yep. the average tenure you mentioned was three weeks because three people, days, three days, <laughs> because people were just quick. Like Commission I was, only. You know, so. look, I once did phone sales. I quit in three hours. So, uh, uh, you know, that must've just made hardcore your ability to sell it. Like you're knocking on a door, someone answers who clearly doesn't want to talk to you yeah. and you have to convince them to buy 17 books or, or 26, <laughs> 24, 24, 24 plus your books for 10 years. Right. So, so, so we'll get into the, the Paul Mitchell and the billionaire stuff, but like, how do you, how do you build up the ability to sell, to be such a great salesman, to sell door to door like that? Like what's, how do you sell? If I had to sell door to door right now, what should I do? Okay, well, first thing you do is know this, and it's the rule to success in the world. Be prepared for a lot of rejection. If you're prepared for a lot of rejection, it's not going to affect you. An example, uh, in my early 20s, I was 20 years old, I get out of the Navy, and I go to work for College Encyclopedia. It's door-to-door sales commission only. Your training program, you get no money for. You have to memorize stuff for four days. But they told me, and I believe what they said. They said, first of all, did you have a set of encyclopedias? I said, no, because we were poor. We had nothing, you know? They said, would it have helped? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't have to do homework at the library, you know, at the school. They said, well, you, what we have is good. Good. And the colliers, anyone could read. It's a high school level, not college. And it's God, everyone should have one of these. They said, but we're going to tell you, very few people make it. The ones that make it big are the ones that know you're going to have a lot of doors closed in your face, but you must be just as enthusiastic on door 51 or 98 if 97 uh, were closed in front of you. What was your rejection rate? 
Oh, at the at front, probably uh, 99% because it took me days to get into the first door, but I believed him. I said, okay, they said that's what it takes to make it. So it took a week before I got in the first door and made my first sale, and I was out of money, so I really needed that sale. But then as you got better at what you do, now maybe I had to knock on 20 doors that where someone was there to get into one. At first, I'd have to do 20 presentations to sell one set of books. Then I got down to, if I could give three presentations, I'll at least get one out of three. So it's a matter of believing and knowing that you're going to get rejection. If you're prepared for it in anything you do, whether starting a business or your own personal life, if you know you get rejection, you're ready for it, you blow it off. And you know, well, I'm going to get rejection, no big deal. I'm going to move on eventually. How, how did you move from... Uh... 99 door slam to, to, you know, to 20 to, you know, how did you kind of, was it something you said when you, when they yeah. opened the door or was it a confidence yeah, thing? It, or? It's, it was a combination of two. At first I was very, very scared, <laughs> you know, so hi, they could read that I, on you. Yeah, yeah. Hi, you know, they could read it, boy. Like, I wasn't persuasive at all, but as it went along, I, you know, I realized I was having fun now. They're going to close the door in my face. What the heck? Hi, my name is, you know, is JP and uh, I'm here with a new educational program coming in the air. I just like to take a few minutes and, and show you guys, get your opinion of it. What do you think? You know, or something like that. I want to make it easier and easier and easier, but still remain truthful. Why did you say, and I know we're getting into the weeds with this, but why did you say a new educational program in the area as opposed to co have Collier's Encyclopedia? Only one guy ever asked me, are you selling something? And if so, what are you selling? I said, in Sacklopedia, he goes, you hit the right door. I love books. Come on in. Because people wouldn't let you through the door. If they thought you were selling, Are they selling they, as, as opposed to like you you're telling them information. Yeah, here. I'm here to sell you a set of encyclopedias. Would you like to see them? No, thank you. Goodbye. So you have to get them interested. So it was, it's an educational program. It's unique. It'll only take a few minutes. And then in the matter of the first 10 minutes, I show them enough in a prospectus book to get their attention. If they're interested, then I will continue to go on. If not, politely thank them for their time and effort to move. And then you also had this idea in your head that if you were a kid with these encyclopedias, your whole life would have been better. So it you had that it, enthusiasm. It would have helped. Oh yeah. I knew it would have, I would have loved to have a set of books in my house. We didn't, we, we didn't have any money. So, so I believed it was good for everybody. So that's why I could tell a story with belief because I believed it. So you're saying, did you say the ratio was I love this ratio, 20 to three to one. Like we're 20 doors opened, three let you in, one sale. Yeah, that was where I got down to. Because, you know, I, I've actually written that exact ratio before and I find when selling companies, that's a good ratio. Like if you make 20 calls to people who are probably interested, if you get three meetings, you'll get one offer. Very good. So it's a similar type of, uh, like I worked for an M&A guy for a while and it was a similar type of ratio. <clears throat> so... Um, but you also have the personality. You have the, you have the smile, and the personality, so that helps out too. Yeah, but it's maybe I didn't at first. Like I don't know. You probably did all the time. I don't know. You, you again. You have to. At first, a I was I don't even know what I looked like at first. I was just afraid till I got used to doing it. You know, then it was fine. So so okay. Then you work for these these companies, mm -hmm. um, and each one it seems like you were doing better and better at sales. You, there was one point in the movie Good Fortune where I thought to myself, "He's definitely getting fired." And that's when 
when you were making more money than the CEO of the company. Yeah. You cannot make more money than the person who's paying you yeah. or else they're going to fire you. That's yeah, like yeah. rule number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he was very foolish because I worked for only $3,000 a month salary, which was low. I left a higher paying job for that. And 6% of new sales. I tripled the size of his company. So yeah. I got that extra 6% of all the new sales, not existing sales. He just said, oh my God, now it's ongoing business, which means the next year I'd only get 6% off new sales. So each time I got that, I may have made more than him, but that following year, he's going to make more than me. So he, so he was, but that's the case. People are irrational in general, and you have to kind of use your rational behavior to, to work around the people who are irrational. Two years, three years after I started John Paul Mitchell Systems, that same particular gentleman called me on the phone and said, I'd like to give you half my company free. Will you come and run it for me? Do what you did for Paul Mitchell. I said, no, I mean, I'm doing this with Paul Mitchell now, but thank you anyways. I wish you good luck. And I think they're out of business. <laughs> Gary Goldman's been a guest on the podcast four times. I would say he's one of the all-time great comedians, and not many people would disagree with me. But what was interesting is the very first time he came on, I don't know if you remember, this was a couple hundred episodes ago, he was so quiet, I had to ask him in the middle of the podcast, are you okay? And he admitted then, I mean, he was almost, I felt like he was red, I, I didn't know what was going on. And he said, he admitted he was depressed. And then when he came on uh, the next time, he said to me, he was so depressed. He had been hospitalized. He was quitting comedy, moving back in to his mom's house. I felt really bad for him. And he, we went out for lunch the next day. We talked about it. And I, I really was a big fan of his comedy. I didn't want him to quit comedy, but he was quitting. And, I, and of course, I didn't want him to be depressed, but he didn't know what to do. He, he was scared. And I was, honestly, I was scared for him. And then the last two times he came on, but particularly the last time he is fully out of his depression. He talks about how he made it through it. And, and he transformed all this depression into a one hour comedy special on HBO produced by Judd Apatow. I just really think this guy is a special guy. And, and again, it's an example of taking tragedy and finding the humor in it and using that humor to lift you to greater heights. So here's Gary. I, I don't know if this is a, a good analogy, but the best analogy I can use these days is that the depression, it's like you're, it's like a, a satanic possession. I wasn't, I wasn't myself for, for so long. And now to, to live as myself and and be as myself is and be myself is is so it's it's exhilarating and I'm so grateful and everything is so much easier to do walking up these stairs getting on the the subway going to the grocery store these things that used to be monumental tasks that I would put off because they were so overwhelming are now just just I don't even think twice about that so when when over the years people would come to me and say do you want to do you want to write a book? Do you want to write a screenplay? Do you want to pitch a, a show? I would say I can't do laundry. <laughs> Is that a bit? That, that almost sounds like no. A bit. <laughs> it's not. It's not. I couldn't. I couldn't even do laundry. So the idea of of me writing a book, it's just yes. I'm very flattered that you think I have that in me. But I, I, and I, and I may, but but my tools are 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 ruined. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny because even 
so, so I must have asked you a couple of times in the past few months to, to come on the podcast and finally our schedules clicked, but just in the past few weeks, you've been writing on Twitter, these hashtag Goldman tips, <laughs> yes. like a comedy tip of the day. Yeah. Where, and often it's a, it's not just a com it's a tip for any kind of art. Like it could be a writing tip. I saw someone tweeted, these are all, these are working for yes. me for music. Yes. So they're really about art and the, and, and the discipline and work, uh, and attention one should pay to being an, an, an artist of any kind. And I think, I feel like these tips are, are picking up steam. So that clearly there is a, a book in you that's coming out, <laughs> you know, bit by bit over, over Twitter, which is exciting right. to, to watch because I've been following these tips. I realized maybe by day four, oh, this is going to be a regular thing. And they were fantastic. Now we're on day 22. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. and they've all, each one has been <laughs> like a, a game changing tip. Oh, wow. So we're going to, we're going to talk about them in a little bit, but I, I want to, okay. I wanted to ask you too about, you know, I want to start with some, some of the things we ended with the last time where you talked about depression and you're yeah. about to take a break then. But, um, you know, I, I do want to, I do want to ask, uh, actually I totally, I, I, now I need to get slapped in the face. To we find were talking out about, about depression. <laughs> so let's just talk, let's, yeah. talk, let's talk about depression. So when I last saw you, you were about to move back to Boston for a little yeah. while. Yeah. You were kind of medication resistant to yeah. clinical depression. Yeah. You had been for a while. Yeah. I remember when you came on for the first podcast, it was early in the morning and that was a bad time for oh, you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You could barely speak. You had no yeah. volume in the voice. And, right, and, yeah. And then the second time I had scheduled it in the afternoon, but but still things were, you were grappling with this demon. Yes. And it wasn't like a situational thing. It was like oh, yeah. a medical thing. Yeah, it was chemical. Yes. And you had been hospitalized. Yes. Yes. And it's it's interesting because the uh, a depression has a rhythm and it, it affects more than just your your mood. It's, it slows down your speech, your access to words and also your your confidence in in speaking and it's hard to make connections my my doctor said that a lot of psychiatrists refer to it as as faux dementia because you get a lot of the the memory and and cognitive issues that you get with with dementia in adult patients so it's it's alarming how many things that i experienced but completely forgotten my it'll really upset my my girlfriend because she'll say oh you don't you don't remember that at all and i said no it was in the depths of the depression and i and i don't remember it and she'll well, she'll have such vivid memories of certain things and it's it's sad well why do you think it, it's i mean and they say that also about bipolar that bipolar okay. often um the initial symptoms almost can seem like early onset alzheimer's yeah and i wonder what's the what's the connection between like some things are somehow not moving into long-term memory. Is that because the depression gets in the way? Like, is it anxiety yeah, or is I'm, it depression? I'm not sure. It might be a combination. My my psychiatrist would, would probably have more specific ideas. He's a, he's a, even for a psychiatrist, he's an expert on on these things. He's he's got a great reputation. His name is Dr. Richard Friedman, and he writes a lot of op-eds for the New York Times. So you can find a lot of his work, but. I, I don't know what the connection is. I just know that it's it's the mood thing is only part of the the depression and there there are physical things like I I remember just my girlfriend would be walking and she's a pretty slow walker and I couldn't keep up with her. I couldn't keep up with her. I would keep telling her to slow down and to wait for me and it was so it was so sad. It looked like she was my my caregiver or something. I was just shuffling around in these these 
these small errands, like three blocks to go get my dog some food would, would just exhaust me. And I'd, I'd come home and, and be exhausted from just three blocks and, and a case of, of dog food. So it, it's just, the, the mood is, is terrible. That's the worst part of it. But, but there are the physical and the, the cognitive issues and also there's there's no escape because you can't enjoy anything like i remember somebody saying well think of some of those things that you love to do and just do them do them exclusively and the list was it was empty there was nothing that i enjoyed doing watching movies reading which was my thing i used to read 50 books at least every year and and for two years i didn't i didn't read a single book i couldn't get through it i couldn't concentrate my mind would get get so so overwhelmed by by the words and I would just read things over and over again and it just was too frustrating to to keep doing. And what do you think what do you think I mean there's lots of causes of depression like yeah. there's lack of serotonin, there's lack of yes. dopamine, there's bipolar. Yeah. Th there's all the there's situational which might get confused with clinical. Sure. What was what do you think was triggering yours? And and this is why a lot of people appear to be treatment resistant because they don't know what kind of depression they have. Right. Yeah, I would I would say that it would it had to have been mostly chemical because the thing that finally gave me the the ladder to to climb out was was change in in medication, but it was the seventh or eighth change in medication in within within two and a half years. Yeah, I've heard it takes yeah. on average 8 years for someone to find the right treatment for it's depression it's incredible and they're saying now that there's some sort of saliva test where they can where they can sort of narrow the the yeah they can do a dna yeah they can do a dna test and then match you against other people who have who were treatment resistant but then eventually yeah. found the right medicine right. they match your dna to see which one it most closely matches in their database and then yeah. they give you the same treatment that the one who matches got right right yeah i've, I've heard about that and but I never I never did that. It was just it was just trial and error. But but my my doctor said I I did ask him. I said why did you think this would finally work? And he said it, the the two medicines I take one is Cymbalta, the other one is Remeron. He said they they attack so many aspects of of a depression chemically, and he he thought that this all out assault would be the would be the answer. And it and it was within within two weeks, and it was it gave me enough of a of a jumping off point where I could start to do a few of the things that had that had helped me in the in the past to to sort of augment my my mood and one of them was was spending time with other people and the other one was was some some exercise not not very vigorous at first but eventually I, I was able to to run long distances and and that became something that that was that was crucial and because that releases endorphins yes. that in general is an antidepressant yes. yes absolutely and and so uh why didn't he start with that like was, was is there side effects like what was he worried about if he started yeah, i'm not sure that? i'm not sure we had tried a, a couple of other things and then at the insistence of my mother i got a second opinion and it was it was just very very foolish and i tried something else and it actually made everything worse by by double or triple so yeah like that was i think yeah. i think people they just throw everything at yeah. you if they don't yeah. know what to do like i remember one right. time i was suffering from depression and they just kept 
literally, let's say, upping the ante yeah. until I was taking these antipsychotic drugs that would just make me sleep all day. Yes. They weren't helping at all. Yes. They were just, I would just be groggy or yes. I would sleep 14 hours and then be groggy the rest of the day. Yes, I will say though that I think Remeron is an antipsychotic, but in the dose that I take, it's it's been found to be a, a an effective antidepressant, but I don't take very much. And I think it was more the Cymbalta that was the 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 difference maker, yeah. And so, so what did you start after two weeks? What did you start feeling like? Did you start like like the clouds cleared or? Well, I don't know if you ever have this reaction to coffee, but some days it makes me feel all powerful and and really confident, and I write things and and I'm just energized. And for two years, I would drink coffee, and nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. I wouldn't get anything out of it. And then I stopped drinking coffee. And then one day I, I had a cup of coffee and I, I felt like a god. And I, I talked to my, my doctor about it and, and he said that that was a really good, good sign that this was having some, some effect on you. And, and, that, and also I had exercised extensively during the two years. I eventually gave up because it, it was just it was too difficult, but I had exercised a lot and got nothing out of it. And then I started exercising again and I would notice a, a, an improvement in my, in my mood w within uh, 15 to 18 minutes of starting the exercise and then it would carry over after the exercise and, and it was really helpful. So it was, it was the, the best way I can put it is the, the medicine just gave me a, a, a more normal starting place for my, for my mood rather than being just underwater all the time. So I remember in 1996, I went to my very first boxing match in Madison Square Garden. It was my very first time going to a boxing event ever, and it was in Madison Square Garden. It was um, Riddick Bowe versus Andrew Galati, and a riot broke out, actually. People were blocking the door. Police were trying to get in. I, I could see police hitting people. Uh, people would run up to me like, hey, join in. And it was just crazy. But that's not the interesting thing for me about this boxing match. Every boxer, when they walk out, they have music that plays when they walk out. So Andrew Galati, who was from Poland, he had like, I don't know, the Polish national anthem. But Riddick Bowe had this great, beautiful rap song that was like, to me, it was like a new evolution in rap. It was combining a lot more melody, a lot more singing. There was a beautiful woman's voice on it. There was a, a, a rapper. The beats were incredible. And there was also the word chess. And so I love chess. I'm like, what is this? The line was, I play my enemies like a game of chess. And I'm like, who, what is this song? This is incredible. And it was the Fugees. Wyclef Jean was the founder of the Fugees. Lauren Hill, of course, was the woman's voice. So it was a bucket list moment for me, again, 23 years later, to have Wyclef Jean on my podcast. After the podcast, we had a little bit of a rap battle, actually, which he, of course, won. But this is another example of someone who overcame all odds. He was born in Haiti. He, he was as poor as it could possibly get. At age nine, he moved to the, the U.S. as a refugee. Hence, that's where the name the Fugees comes from the rap group which he founded, the Fugees. He won three Grammys, Walter Fugees. Now he's 
producing and, and creating every day. His life is a, a dream come true for him. He's also incredibly charitable around all issues related to Haiti and, and so on. I hope you like this clip as much as I do. Here's Wyclef Jean from episode 411. Again, I felt like I was bonding to him not, not only as a peak performer and someone who I had revered for so long, but I felt a friendship developing out of these podcasts. So many of these podcasts, I feel... You know, some of them, it's a little harder to bond with the guest and for a variety of reasons, but some of them, I feel like this instant kinship where even though I'm intimidated by them and in awe of them, perhaps for even childish reasons, we still have managed to overcome that and become friends. And I'm, I'm always really grateful for that. Uh, a great example, by the way, is Jocko Willink. We almost make fun of the fact that we're complete opposites in almost every way. And yet we get along so well and uh, communicated with him outside of the podcast. And he's always been a great guest. He's been on several times. But let's first hear this uh, Wyclef Jean clip. Let's talk about that. You're in Haiti for the first nine years of life. Facts. <laughs> Facts. You were in Brooklyn. You, you were basically, it's not like everybody who had your background like said, oh, okay, I'm going to be in the worst ghettos possible and then I'm going to simply be the biggest rap star on the planet. What's the leap? What made you different? So what do you think, like if, let's say someone's listening to this and and they're going to their job, their corporate job, they're, they've been doing it for 30 years, they're getting tired and, and they're like, it's easy for him to say, I get it, he grew up in bad neighborhoods and, you know, poverty-stricken countries but he had these benefits. He had this benefit that as a kid, he was able to put in his 10,000 hours studying music. I want to do something new now. What would you suggest to a guy like that? Yeah, well, I mean, I had absolutely no advantage. My come up literally was like, it wasn't like I had the time and was like, oh, my mama's on welfare. Let me spend. No, I was a security guard. I was the waiter. I was the bus boy that was serving you, Right. Um, Do you think it's, you think it? so? I so, was doing all of these jobs, but at the same time, I remember when they kicked me out of, they kicked me, um, I might as well say the restaurant that I got kicked out. I remember I got fired from Burger King, though, <laughs> right? And if anybody- How? What did you do? First of all, remember on the mass, on the score, remember I said, I used to work at Burger King, a king yeah. taking orders. You know yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what did I do? I literally was making whoppers, but at the same time, um, he caught me singing. You know what I'm saying to you? And one thing about it is when you're working in these fast food restaurants in our era, you would walk in and they would try to brainwash you with a, a video of what you're supposed to do and what not to do. And this video was like the Bible. So when you, you know, it's like, welcome to Burger King. When you're making the Whopper, this is how you have to do. Your hands must be clean, boom, 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 boom. You must have, and I wasn't like talking over no sandwich, you feel me? But literally I'm making my Whopper and in my mind, man, you know, I'm like just in Madison Square Garden and I'm just singing my songs. And the dude comes, he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing, Gene? And I'm like, I'm making a Whopper. He's like, no, you're singing over the Whopper. Is that what you're doing? I'm like, no, I'm not. Man, bang, fired. So I just want everyone that's listening. So it's not like um, I, we're those people. Like I was just saying at the end of the day, 
every jobs that you could think, <laughs> what was the word? I was like, yo, Clef can't keep a job. Because literally the job that I loved and was most passionate about was just doing my music. But when I tell you I've done every, the job that I remember most was working with my father. And this is why nobody in the world could tell me nothing about America. Nobody. Because I traveled the world. And when I tell you there's really no place like America, my man, like this ain't just a word. This is like an immigrant who's telling you that. Because I'm working with my father and we cleaning bathrooms. I'll never forget at the Ramada Inn in New Jersey. Yes, why Clef is cleaning bathrooms with his dad. And when I was cleaning bathrooms with my dad, the cover band was outside and they're playing Journey. Um, but the, the coolest thing the cover band was playing was um, Owner of a Lonely Heart. You know, and so when I used to clean the bathrooms, I would lose myself with the music that the cover bands were playing. And I remember I had the plunger and somebody did a mess in the bathroom, man. And I like put the plunger down, you know what I'm saying? And freaking piss come up on Wyclef's face. <laughs> man, dude. I'm so pissed off and so heated right now. I take the plunger and I throw it down, right? And my father comes to me and he's like, you pick up the plunger. Pick up the plunger now. And I pick up the plunger. He's like, this is America, you know. Never be shameful of anything you do as long as what? As long as it's honest. As long as it's what? Yeah, dad, as long as it's honest. Okay, you go back, you finish the bathroom. And so for me, it's like, that's why I could relate to Bruce Springsteen. You know, that's why I could relate to Marley because, so anyone who's listening to this, this ain't, that's why I say my life is like the Cinderella man because at the end of the day, it's like, I just want everybody to know the key to what I did is just the passion. And at the end of the day, it's like whether I'm cleaning the bathroom whether I'm a waiter, where, wherever you see me, everyone's going to be like, yo, when I seen this dude, he just was so happy like it was his last day on earth mm -hmm. because this is how my daddy raised me, but in my brain, I just had an a, a ending plan. It's not where you start, but where you're going. You know? And I think it's having that positive aspect that is always lets you move forward instead of saying, ah, oh, this is all I'm going to be. I'm, I have my excuses. I can't do it. Like if every day you're kind of saying, Okay, well, I'm listening to yes, I'm cleaning the bathroom, I'm going to be positive about it, just like my dad said. That's always a way to just slightly move the needle a little forward. And if you keep doing that, you know, maybe it'll be at a later age you could succeed where you succeeded, but it could still happen. 100%. I always tell people that first rule my dad told me, you have to have a job. Like, they, it do, you got to be doing something, like at the end of the day. But the job, but passion is different. And they, my dad said, but once you lose your passion, though, you lose everything. So I always tell people, so my brother is a lawyer, but his passion is writing. So he loves to write scripts. And this is where he gets like his energies. And so I, I always meet people and they're like, yo, you know, I'm working at AT&T, right? Or I'm an IT guy here. Or I'm a... You know, but then I also meet people that like, yo, I'm a doctor, but yo, I be DJing on the weekends. This is what I love. And somehow this is what they love. So I always tell us as humans, like, don't forget the true essence 
of life. You still, because sometimes it seems like you need that dollar. And because you need that dollar so much, you only work for that dollar. Then you turn around, you six feet deep and have not enjoyed the essence of life, which is adventure. And you have to have passion and find it. The next clip I picked out is from episode 463 with Humble the Poet. This guy is like wise beyond his years. I don't want to say he's a failed rapper, but he didn't quite break out as a success as a rapper, but he did become really successful as a writer and so inspirational to read his story. I don't like self-help, which tells you what to do. I don't like self-help where the self-help guy gets on a pedestal and says, here's the top 10 things you need to do to be a leader. Like, I find that to be a lot of BS. But with Humble the Poet, he tells his story, and this is how I like to write as well. I tell my story, speak honestly about the tragedy and the hardships that you've been through and how you dealt with them at that time, again, in an honest way. And again, let the audience, let the readers decide what their takeaway is from it. And so I appreciate Humble the Poet as not only a writer, but as also someone who's very honest and sincere about his story. And I learned from his story. He was a very, in fact, in his first book, Unlearn, he even commented that he was very much inspired by my book, Choose Yourself. And I see Unlearn as his own kind of extension of the ideas from Choose Yourself. So again, Humble the Poet, he's an artist, a writer, a rapper, started out as a school teacher. And in this episode, he told me about all the societal pressures he had on him, societal, cultural, family, all the pressures to become a doctor or a lawyer, and he chose his own path. So how did he break away from the shoulds and the can'ts and follow his own inner compass? That's what you'll hear in this clip. We're all disappointed in, in life, particularly the harder we work for something, it means it's worth working for. It means it's difficult. It means we're going to suck for a while because it's worth getting good at. Uh, uh, like, for instance, I just randomly opened to a chapter, chapter 20 here. You can be whatever the fuck you want. So it strikes me that maybe people were telling you, you know, maybe while you're writing this, you're thinking, maybe people were telling you, no, oh, you can't be you can't be a rapper, you can't be a musician, you need this, 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 or you need to be in LA or New York or whatever. And so t tell me what this, this chapter yeah, means. I think, you know, definitely when we think about, you know, you know, Biggie dedicating a song to the teachers that said he wouldn't amount to much, you always think about, and I, and I always thought to myself, I was like, man, I know a lot of teachers. Teachers don't say that to kids. Um, and I mean, nobody said to me, like, you're not good enough, you can't do it. What, what they do is they do a lot more passive aggressively. They'll be like... Can, can you make money doing that? You know, is that, some, you know, don't you think you should lean into something more realistic? What if you get like a full-time gig and just do that on the side? Like a lot of, you know, slowly chipping away at your dreams and trying or, to say these or, types or, of things. Or the worst is, you know, really congratulate you is you're really brave that you're trying this. <laughs> yeah, really brave that you're trying this. And what happened was when I got to that $80,000 of debt and realized that, shit, I don't have any way to pay this. Um, I have a mortgage payment coming up. Um, and I have no outs. I don't know what to do. Um, it was the scariest situation of my life, and I isolated myself from everybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I avoided people because I had not only owed 
the bank money. I owed friends money. I owed people money like that I cared about. I didn't want to be that guy who, who ran away. Somebody just ran away on me. Somebody that I considered a brother at this point. And I didn't want to be that guy. But I ended up spending two months in, no, sorry, I ended up spending two weeks in bed just taking a bunch of whatever I could find and just medicating and, and avoiding the world. And that wasn't helping. And there were a lot of good friends in my life at that point that weren't, that were saying good things to me. Like, you're going to have to sell this place. Like, you can't keep these payments up. You can't even afford to rent this out again because you need an income. And I would be like, see, you don't believe in me. You guys mm -hmm. don't believe in me. Or like, hey, you know, we saw in his behavior that he wasn't worth trust trusting. And you knew that. And you, you ignored that. And me being like, why are you blaming me for this? This isn't my fault. And really pushing back. Uh, and until I eventually had my had some rest, had some time to grieve over this, and then finally had my adult moment where I was like, no one's going to save the day. I got to figure this out. And I am sick of hearing the stupid motivational quotes because Tumblr's not helping me today. And and I'm going to be honest, I heard about this guy named James Altiger who got rich and then went broke and got rich again and then went broke and now lives a life of minimalism. And as I said, I read... Uh, I read your story, then I read, you know, your article on self-publishing. Uh, you know, I read about your nomadic ways. I read about your minimalism ways before the word minimal was even cool. And I was like, this is the first guy who's just honest about it and who's mm -hmm. not embarrassed. And that was one of the first steps, you know, in me just telling people, like, I fucked up. I don't know what I did, but I, you know, I don't know what to do, but I fucked up and I sold the place. You know, I, I moved back home with my parents. I listened to a lot of I told you so's I, and I, I ate it. I, I had to take these consequences. Um, I focused on taking personal responsibility. Even if somebody betrayed me, even if somebody lied to me, I didn't see any value anymore in feeling like a victim. I think I, for a long time I enjoyed the pity that I got. I enjoyed people feeling sorry for me. But now I got to a point where people's pity isn't going to pay the bills. You know, people's empathy isn't going to help me move further right now. I need to take all the responsibility I can. You know, it's, it's interesting because you, you look at stories of successful people or, you know, people who are striving for success. No one ever says, man, I was, I, what, what really made me a success was being a victim. Yeah. <laughs> I really took that victim thing and just took it to the top. Yeah, I, I no ran one, with it. Everyone <laughs> felt sorry for me and they just hit me with bags of money. Yeah, like no one, vic victimhood is never a strategy. Yeah. So, so. It's uh, addictive, but it's not. It's, right, it's yeah. addictive because it's a way to relieve stress. Like you're feeling the stress like, am I a failure? Because that's really stressful. Oh, no, I'm just a victim. So that relieves the stress. Like I was a good guy. They all lied to me. Right. I didn't do anything wrong here until I had my adult moments, which was like, yes, you did. You, you listened to a person's words and you ignored their actions. So, so, so what does this chapter mean? You can be whatever the fuck you want. Uh, so this is the point where I started coming up with ideas and having these little internal voices in my head trying to talk me out of it. You know, you come up and this is everybody. You know, you say, I'm going to go to the gym. And then two minutes later, your mind's like, ah, should we eat breakfast first? Maybe we need to buy new shoes before we actually go. Is our gym membership even, you know, renewed? And we, and we say all this shit and then we talk ourselves out of it. And the reality is be mindful of those voices talking yourself out of it. And you can legitimately be whatever the fuck you want to be. If you want to be a rapper, then go ahead and be a rapper. If you want to be an aerospace engineer, you can be that. You can be whoever you want to be. And your biggest obstacle is yourself and the voices that you've carried along. 
You know, whether it was somebody that said something to you when you were a child and that stuck with you and you didn't understand it when you heard it as a child and now you've just carried it into adulthood. It's about learning about yourself. And, and that's why the book's called Unlearn is because it's about letting go of old, stale ideas that we've just been carrying around as baggage. And again, those ideas, uh, I'm fixated on this, but those ideas had good intentions. Your parents yeah. wanted you to be comfortable. They wanted you to be safe. Yes. Okay, the best way to, for for you to be safe don't try to um, be a trapeze artist. Yeah. <laughs> like you want to be a trapeze artist? How about you just play soccer at school yeah. and, and then study hard and be a lawyer? Yeah, because <laughs> my parents came to this country in the 70s and what they understood made money were doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Mm -hmm. And we always make the joke that that's one job now, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and I feel like any child of an immigrant from anywhere around the world have had this experience where you know, but they have the best intentions. They're not sitting there like, how do we crush our child's spirits today? <laughs> They're saying, how do right. we maintain our bloodline and thrive in this new country that we barely understand? I think it's an important thing to understand to also vo avoid the victim thing. Like, if you understand that even if you don't know why somebody planted some education in you that, that might be stale, they probably had good intention doing it. Yeah. Like, you don't have to understand why. You could just say, look, they had good intentions, but now I need to have an adult moment and do what I want to do. And to your to your point of like anyone could be a rapper. Not everyone's gonna be, you know, Eminem, but anyone could play some music, write some poetry, good or bad, and rap to it. Yeah. And then you could do it again the next time, and you're probably a tiny bit better than the first time, and so on. And if you have fun making it, then you win. If mm -hmm. if if the reward comes through the work. And you know, and you're just enjoying the rainbow, and you're not even thinking about a pot of gold. Then you've already won. That's right. what ninety percent of the people haven't even realized yet. One of my favorite people on the planet. I could talk to this guy eight hours a day, every day, about writing, about art, about life, about history, about writer's block about what he calls the resistance. We all face the resistance when it comes to achieving, you know, whatever our passions are, whether it's, you know, writing a novel, making a TV show, starting a business, being a good parent. We all face the resistance. And he's written so many great books from The War of Art, Turning Pro, and, and many, many more. He's written so much about this. Uh, he started out as a cab driver for 20 or 30 years, but he always knew he was a writer. He wanted to be a writer. And now he's an amazing best-selling author. You might have seen uh, one of the movies based on his books, The Legend of Bagger Vance, one of my favorite movies. And it's amazing how he describes the arc of the hero and how he applied that to not only The Legend of Bagger Vance and his other novels, but also how the arc of the hero applies to you as the artist. And so Stephen is always a welcome guest on this podcast. He's been on a couple of times. Let's play the clip. I want to talk about, you know, you have this beautiful way of describing what is a good book and what is good writing and what and what is the artist's journey. And I want to talk about those, but I want to talk about it not only in the context of for listeners who want a creative work of art, but but also where where are we in our own stories? Are we the heroes or are we the the red shirts? Meaning, uh -huh. you know, on Star Trek, 
you know, whoever wears the red shirt when they beam down to the planet, you know those guys are dead by oh, the end of the story. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so are you Captain Kirk or are you one of the guys who beams down with uh -huh. everybody and you're just dead by uh -huh. the end? So, so because I think I, you kind of imply in these things that everybody is a hero of their own story. I don't think that's true. I think some people get the call to action and never respond to it. Uh -huh. They have the opportunity to be the hero, but they don't respond. Uh huh. I'm sure that's true. But, you know, they should respond, you know? And sooner or later, everybody does, I think. I, I don't hope. know. I don't know, because... I hope. Look, look at your own story. You were a cab driver. Here. You were trying to be a writer, unsuccessfully. You, I think you mentioned you, you worked for 28 years writing before you published your first novel. Something like that, Now, yeah. 20 books later, yeah. you, you, however you define success, I could, I could define it for you and say you're a success. Because, uh -huh. you know, that's a thing you, you talk about, which is what is success, and we could talk about that that later but um uh what if you had never really gave up i mean you, you know in order to be the hero you you have to give up things there's there's you know you talk a little bit in one of your the little books about um physics and how you know often energy we put in one area like let's say self-doubt comes back to us in another area which is self-belief uh, and, and as you conquer that self-doubt, you get self-belief. But what if you had never given and sacrificed the things you did? You might not have been the hero of your story. Well, I guess I guess that's true, James, in the sense that, I mean, like we're talking about the hero's journey, right? That starts with the hero, quote-unquote, in the ordinary world, whatever that means, stuck in their job, stuck in their whatever it is. And then comes, according to Joseph Campbell, the call to adventure, right? Some sort of summons or your life breaks down or whatever it is and immediately after that in the in the myth is the refusal of the call right like luke skywalker when he first gets called to go with obi-wan kenobi he says i don't want to do it you know or odysseus when he's summoned to the trojan war he does that whole thing where he pretends to be crazy and sows the field with salt and uh, peter parker when he uses his spider man abilities to just perform in a boxing ring uh -huh. until his mentor his believe uncle it or ben. not i've never seen spider-man but if you say that well that's exactly true though forget the movies just the comic books uh, -huh. uh you know uncle ben died and said you know with with great power comes great responsibility and finally he says i'm going to be a superhero uh -huh. instead so then the hero's journey doesn't really start, as you say, until somebody does respond to the call. So if they don't respond to it, then you're right. They're not, they're not the hero of, of their own lives anymore. Right, because you, you... But I don't think it's ever too late to respond to that call. Right, well, that's a good point, too. And I don't think there's more... I, as you point out with the artist's journey, there's more than one journey you can have yeah, in life. many, can, many journeys. Right, yeah. so, so, so I want to get into that, but... Um, I love the phrase that after the call to action, the hero is going from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world. So, you know, you, you talk about in these books um, the inciting moment, but you, you, you just said a phrase earlier, which I think is almost equal to the inciting moment. I'm curious about it. And it struck me three times. Uh, so when you describe Jason Bourne's inciting moment, it's when he says, who am I? And you just said, who am I, you know? And I wonder if that's always the inciting moment when they realize, oh, I'm right at the, at the, I'm right in the middle line, that thin, tiny middle line between the ordinary world and the extraordinary world. Which one am I? Am I ordinary or am I extraordinary? And, and you have to ask this question, who am I at that point? 
I think you hit the nail right on the head there. And it's like sort of what I was just saying before about how things will boil up inside you and 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 uh, spontaneously make you cross that threshold because I think that question from birth is the thing that plagues all of us, right? Who am I? Why am I here? You know, and we're we're as we grow up, we're presented with various identities, right? We can be a jock, we can be a nerd, we can be a, you know whatever, right? And as we try these on, none of them work, right? And we 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 find ourselves in some sort of an ordinary world. We get married, we have a, you know, we having a house or an apartment or whatever it is. But that question, you're absolutely right, I think, James, is who am I? Who am I? And and if we're living a life that's not kind of true to who we really are, if we're really a stand-up comic or a writer and we're working on Wall Street or we're doing something like that, that is that thing is kind of applying pressure internally on us. We may feel it in dreams or whatever, or we'll act it out in real life. But I think you're right. When the hero crosses the threshold and goes into the extraordinary world, whether he realizes it or not, or she realizes it or not, the real question they're asking is, is who am I? And they may be, they may be, they may be at the start, they have an idea that I'm, I'm going to be X as I enter this extraordinary world. And that might not turn out to be true. You know, by the end, they may, by the end, as the layers of the onion get peeled back through experience, they sort of come at the end to realize, ah, this is who I am. But I think if somebody's listening to this and they're sort of a little bit lost in their life or they're wondering, you know, where, how do I get to that moment or is there that moment in my life? I think the answer is yes, because it's built in to your, to your soul from, the, from birth. You know, just like an acorn has got the oak tree in it already, I think each one of us is born with a, with a destiny and with a calling and with an individual identity that we've... I'm a believer in previous lives, but even if you don't believe in that, I think you have to agree that we're born as like three or four kids are born in a family. They're all completely different from day one, right? They're not a blank slate. So in other words, I think what I'm trying to say is that inside of us, kind of like a woman's biological clock, something is ticking. You know, our hero's journey is sort of ticking and it wants to be lived out. And even if we are avoiding it through fear or whatever it is, or we're living an ultra-conventional life or doing what other people expect us or doing what we think we ought to be, that little time bomb is kind of ticking. And, and at some point, or it's, maybe another analogy would be a pot or a kettle that's starting to boil, it's going to sort of come to the surface and, and kind of force itself, erupt itself into, into consciousness. So that I, I think in many ways... Our lives are sort of living us, if you know what I mean. Our deeper life is living us. And I mean, I don't know what brought you to that moment of giving stuff away or other moments in your life, but I'm sure it was some undercurrent that you might not even have been aware of. No, I, I agree with that. And I, um, and I do think it probably does boil up for people. I mean, that's the phrase midlife crisis is kind of that uh -huh. boiling point. But let me ask you, like, did your parents... Uh, reach that did, did your father for instance have a call to action when that took him from the ordinary to the extraordinary you know that's a really good question i wish my dad was here to, to ask him that i have a feeling off the top of my head as you as you ask me that my dad lived a i want i don't want to say a conventional life he fought in world war ii he you know raised a family in the new york suburbs and i think my dad was uh 
once he had my once they had my brother and me, he kind of gave himself over to raising us. So I don't know if he really if the call really kind of came for him in that sense. And in a way, it's it's kind of heroic what he did, but it was a sort of a, a sacrifice. But you I, know? I think I I think that's the that that's the thing is that not everybody ultimately becomes the hero of their story. And I'm not saying your dad wasn't the hero of the story. I'm, like you say, it's heroic raising kids. I think kids. you're right. I think you're right. Uh, but like, take take what the so-called greatest generation, which your dad was a part of, yeah. fought in World War II. Yeah. And but then the '50s happened, where there was this sort of, you know, after the war, we had had enough. That generation had had enough. They got tired. They wanted the benefits of fighting in that war, which was, which was what they thought was the conventional life. Yeah. Let's even put up the wall yeah, around yeah. our house. Yeah. To keep out. The yeah. unconventional, yeah, and and I think a lot of people, and that's why they were so threatened later on by, you know, the the late '60s and all the youth movements then, and and so on. I mean, you could make a case. It's just coming to me as you're saying this, that you know, I'm a member of the Boomer generation, and you could make a case that our generation, this Boomer generation, acted out the hero's journey of their, of their parents, mm. you know, be, in some way, you know, carried that on. I mean, why did that entire generation just sort of freak out in kind of a mass, you know, real social movement that dominated the country for years? Yeah, it's interesting, I guess, because, you know, World War II for many young people was kind of a, um, this extended transition from youth to maturity. And whereas the boomer generation, many people who didn't go to Vietnam, for instance, didn't have that extended break. Didn't have that that intensity of of fighting in a war. Yeah, yeah. And so instead of just moving into the 1950s style of conventionalism, you were 18, 19, 20. You're like, I'm not doing that because they were 27 when they did it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They were done with World War II and then the GI yeah. Bill, so they were much older. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, but at 18 or 19, you can't have the white picket fence, so you have youth movements yeah. and, and this that yeah. changed the world. And flipped it to the other side, if you think about the greatest generation, there were guys that were like 20 years old and 21 years old flying bombers over Germany. You know, that, so they were like propelled into maturity, into incredible maturity, you know, responsible for the lives of so many other people, not to mention destroying other people's lives, that maybe that was an incredible crisis too. They were just forced... You know, they were kind of forced onto a hero's journey before they were even remotely ready for that kind of thing. The next clip is, I've mentioned her earlier, Julia Cameron, author of The Artist's Way. Again, she writes so succinctly about creativity. And we're all, we're all hampered by our own beliefs and insecurities and, you know, the book, The Artist's Way, is like a Bible of creativity. But this podcast was so important to me because I'm always experimenting with new things, new ways of being creative, new ways of experiencing life, new activities. Like lately I've been doing, as many of you know, I've been performing stand-up comedy up to 10 times a week in some weeks. But I always think to myself, you know what? I'm never going to be able to put in the so-called 10,000 hours. I'm already 51 years old. What is this going to even mean? Like 10,000 hours from now, I'll be 60. I'm, what am I going to do? Be going on stages at midnight on a Tuesday night when I'm 60 years old? No, 
I just, I'm just doing it because it's an, a really difficult skill and I love it. And I love learning, you know, the creativity behind it. And, and it's adding to my writing. It's adding to my public speaking. It even adds to my sales ability and the way I look at the world. And so I said to her, I said to Julia Cameron, I feel like I'm never going to be great at this, or I'm never even going to be good at this because I'm not going to be able to put in the hours. I've got other responsibilities. I'm very busy. And she said, what a shame that you are putting yourself in this emotional bondage by the 10,000 hour rule. And she gave me very practical suggestions about how to think about this and what to do to overcome my own feeling of I can't and get to the other side of that to find my own version of whatever success is in, in this area. And I plan on applying her. I have been applying her techniques every single day since. So this episode is number 484. Here's the clip. When I teach, uh, I use lots of lists. You know, I'll say, list 25 things that you love. I love rhubarb pie. <laughs> I love green chili stew. I love Arabian horses. I love maple leaves. Uh, and when you list the things that you love, it's a very centering exercise. Uh, and I think uh, it's important uh, that we maybe jot down 25 things we love. And then when we are feeling at our most despairing, we look at our 25 things we loved and we think, wait a minute, I am the one who loves this. Do what, what, what other types of lists are your favorite lists? I, one called Counting Coup, which is from a Native American tradition, uh, and that's I'm proud that I taught my daughter how to ride horseback. I'm proud that I roller skated in Central Park. I'm proud that I, and you, <clears throat> you list a list of 10 things you're proud of, uh, and it gives you a, a sort of snapshot of your value system. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, you know, people tend to, you know, whatever you put most of your attention on is a good way of describing who you are. So you look at like the internet now, if everybody, if all you do is argue with people on the internet, then basically that's the type of person you are. If you, you know, focus on the things you love, then the type of person you are is a loving person. And I think that stuff is, is more valuable than people think and, and does require to set aside some time to make those lists or to do the morning pages or to, to connect to that part of yourself for, to bring out your authentic voice. And maybe it's that just to, just to bring it back to my emotional terrorist, maybe it's that authenticity that often can skip the 10,000 hours, particularly on, on something creative. Well, I'd love to see you skip 10,000 hours. Me too. I've done like maybe 3,000 hours. I want to skip 7,000 now. <laughs> so I think uh, writing a list of these are the things that I love, writing another list, which I think is valuable, which is I love to dance. I love to hike. I love to, and you, you list activities that you love, 
and then you go back to the top of your list and you write the date of the last time you let yourself do it. Mm, that's great. Uh, and <clears throat> a lot of times you'll find you absolutely love making homemade vegetable soup and you haven't made it in 10 years. Yeah, because life goes by. When you're going, you, let's say the average person or, or let's say the average American worker has their nine to five job. That means from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. they're either getting ready, commuting, or going to work and they might feel stuck in that routine trying to figure out how to get out of that routine. What would you suggest to that person who's just feels stuck in general? They, they can't quit their job or they feel like they can't because of kids, mortgage, whatever. Uh, what, what, would, what stirs the pot? I would tell them to go to a children's bookstore. Hmm. And what they will find uh, is that there are books like all about snakes, all about engines, all about big cats, uh, and that if they let the childlike part of themselves pick a book, uh, a lot of times, this is where I, again, I, I just, uh, this 10,000 hours thing really throws me uh, because I think uh, that it's intimidating. Hmm. Uh, and you start counting and trying to say, well, did I ever have a thousand hours? Uh, and I think I want to read another poem. Absolutely. And this one uh, addresses the the working drudge that is afraid to find something delightful. And the children's bookstore is a good source of delight. So are pet stores. Okay, this is called Come to Me. Come to me. There is no darkness in which I cannot see you. Come to me. My green heart holds your ancestors. They are waiting to hear your dreams. Speak to them. They know your name. Do not imagine you are alone. Do not imagine they have left you. They are listening, waiting for your voice. Come home. All of us are waiting. Every bird remembers you. The lion in his pride still knows your name. The gazelle, the snake, the silver heron lifting at the shore, all these and more, your family. Come back to me. You do not need to grind your bones to dust, rusting your heart. You are known to us. Only come home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.